Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Charity Questions. And this is our fifth episode. And today we've got Ken Burnett, a master storyteller and the author of one of my favorite books, Storytelling Can Change the World. So really, really excited to have you here today, Ken. Hi. Good morning. Great to see you, George. I'm delighted and honored to be here today. Fantastic. Lovely. And so you know that this is the podcast where we take the questions from the charity sector and direct them to different people, whether it's fundraising, management, governance, whatever it might be. And so actually, for, for a new twist, we're going to kick off with a question that Ken asked me to ask. And, and I didn't know this, um, but Ken has, has a long history of working with DSC and especially our founder, Michael Norton. So, Ken, kick us off. What, what was that like working with DSC in the early stages? And tell us a little bit. Well, it was, it was fantastic because... Um, Michael and Hillary were starting the DSC um, roughly around the same time that I came into the sector and I was working um, particularly with the organization that became ActionAid. And um, Michael uh, lived not too far away from me, so we met up. Uh, he persu- he ha- was a fantastic influence in my a professional life because I lacked confidence, I think, in those days. And I was in a new area. I was also um, quite young. I was 26 years old. And Michael was very keen on professionalizing the sector and, and sharing knowledge and information. And he said to me, well, you know, you because I came from a publishing background and uh, a sales environment. Yeah. And he he said to me, you know, you've got quite a lot that you could teach to what was then. I mean, there was no profession of fundraising as such. There was no institute. There was nothing like that around. And in fact, Directory of Social Change was one of the first great resources for Absolutely. the yeah. uh, And um, uh, Michael and I put on some joint events together. We... Um, we, we worked in really quite uh, amazingly dingy church halls. And, and, and Michael, we, we used to kind of spar a little bit about how to do these things because Michael would say, well, we've got to do these things as cheaply as possible because they're charities, they don't have budgets, they don't have money. And in those days, that was absolutely true. Um, but I would say to him, look, well, the thing is that they're going to give a day of their time. We, we ought to at least make sure that our basic human comforts like toilets and things like that. Michael wanted to keep the cost down as low as possible. And so sometimes we were in fairly primitive surroundings, but we put on some events and and Michael encouraged me to be a speaker. And then he encouraged me to to edit a book, which was the first book that I published, which was called Advertising by Charities. I think it's long out of print. Uh, I've not heard of it again, (laughs) sorry. Okay. Well, I was editor, but I also contributed a couple of chapters to it. And uh, it was based on one of the seminars that Michael and I organized where a whole lot of people uh, came in and and they each contributed a chapter to this book. And then uh, at the time I was starting my business and I was working on uh, uh, particularly charity annual reports. And so I wrote a book called charity annual reports very much driven by Michael and published yeah. by the Directory of Social Change. So I, I think I can honestly say that if it hadn't been for uh, Michael's encouragement, mm. um, I probably would not have gone down the path that, I, that I've gone, particularly as, a, as a, an author. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, uh, and curiously, there's a kind of... Um, 25 years later or so, I was um, the chair of judges for the Professional Fundraising Awards. And um, we were looking for somebody to give a Lifetime Achievement Award to. And uh, um, it was an award that I'd received myself. And I thought, well, you know, somebody who really deserves this is Michael Norton. Absolutely. And his name was put forward to the committee and we decided that he would be a very worthy recipient. So that was probably wow. 15 years ago or so. But I felt it was a little tiny bit of an opportunity for me to to thank uh, a giant of the sector who Absolutely. was very influential towards me. Absolutely. That's, that's really nice. And it's nice to know you have that history w- with DSC and we're certainly thankful for that, definitely. Yeah, no, it was good. It was great. Yeah. 
Really nice, yeah. And so for those that don't know, I said it earlier, Michael Norton's one of the founders of DSC. Uh, I, I guess I say 45 years, but that was when I joined. So it's a little bit more than that now. Um, yeah, right. history. yeah, yeah, right. Very early days it was. Absolutely. So you've gone on to, as you say, become an author. And, and one of the most famous books that I know that you, you've written is, is Storytelling Can Change the World. And it certainly changed the way I saw the world. Um, one of my colleagues at DSC, Gabby, she's asked, do you remember the story that changed the world for you? OK, well, I find that a great question, but a really difficult one to answer because there are so many <laughs> So many stories that are that are, that are so influential, and to me, stories go right back to my early childhood, and they were very formative things. You know, so I was a great follower of the Greek myths, and you know, read uh, avidly Homer's, the you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, yeah. and things like that. So things like that. Uh, I was never very good at school. Um, school didn't like me and I didn't like school. I uh, spent most of my time looking out the window and wishing that I was somewhere else. But every now and then, the teachers, instead of you know, presenting us with dull, boring facts and, and heavy information, they would tell a story. I mean, the obvious ones are, I like, um, you know, so Archimedes uh, and uh, his Eureka yeah. moment and um, Isaac Newton and the apple and things sure. like that. And sure. I, would sit, I would sit up and pay attention. And mm. It was the stories that stuck with me, uh, Robert the Bruce and the spider and, and things like that. And, you know, and I, I, again, at the time, I was uh, a big fan of sort of ripping yarns for youngsters like King Solomon's Mines and things like that. So they all made a, a huge influence upon me and my character. But it, there was no single story. I think this was a, and, and they are, you know, stories are all around us and stories connect people and, and mm -hmm. they, they are what interests people. And, um, you know, so it's it's really hard to sort of, separate stories from the formative nature of our of our characters but one particular story does stand out for me as a as a um a great influence in my professional life was the what i called the swedish story mm. and this is a story which is actually told in my book i won't tell it now <laughs> but it um i used it to open conferences. It, it's a story that evolved from the very first time that I left the shores of Britain yeah. to speak to an audience in another country. I went to Stockholm in Sweden. And um, it's a great opening story. It's very funny. It's uh, humor that works in, in any language or any culture. And um, uh, it's been priceless to me, uh, really priceless. I've probably, you know, all around the world in probably 30 plus countries, I've used that story as an opening. Like that. And, it, and it's also one which enables me to, um, to sort of parody the, the British tendency to rely on everybody speaking English. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which I feel quite self-conscious about. So you know, that, that's probably the, 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 the best answer. I mean, the, the other story that really changed my life was a story called The Worst Tourist, which involved me um, being in Africa and seeing a young boy dying from AIDS. And mm -hmm. I don't come out of that story at all well, but, but maybe that will come up later in mm -hmm. our conversations. But that, that was... Um, and, and there was, there's lots and lots of stories that, uh, and I, you know, it was the real, when I started writing that book in, um, you know, about six, seven years ago, mm. um, I realized that I had spent most of my life telling stories. And mm. it's what I, it's what, it's what we do. I was a, a direct mail copywriter for most of my career when I, you know, when I ran my agency, my bit was writing, was writing, that's all about telling stories absolutely absolutely yeah so the, you're absolutely right story is so important we're so ingrained in, into what we do as humans isn't it and, and it i guess we're also persuading people through storytelling we're trying to help them to see something in a new way and can you think of a time where you you've told a story that maybe you thought was going to land well or, or potentially a story you were testing the water with and 
potentially it didn't go down very well or you had difficulty persuading people through that story? Yeah, I don't know if I've got any specific instance. I do know that when I started doing seminars, again, supported by Michael, yeah. I often, you know, I would often be nervous and I would often, um, you know, be less than perfect in my storytelling. But I actually learned quite early on that you don't have to be perfect. I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer anybody can tell a story. You don't have to be a great novelist to tell a story. As long as you tell your story with power and passion and it's authentic and it's you, um, then um, the story will work. And so, so actually, you know, falling flat on your face is not the worst thing that can happen hmm. uh, for a storyteller. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think, um, yeah, I can't think of any particular instance where I've, I've died on my feet, but in my early seminars, I certainly did quite often. <laughs> so much so that I got quite used to it. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I, I guess story can come on organically, um, but for you as an expert storyteller, one, one of my colleagues, Dean, he's asking, uh, do you use any practical tools to guide you through the process of storytelling? Yeah, um, I thought that was quite an interesting um, question. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I use any, I mean, I, I use my hands, yeah, like an Italian newsreader. You know, I start off <laughs> kind of quite restrained, and then before long, I'm all over the place. So, so yeah, I'm expressive. I try to stand. You know, I I stand up when I tell yeah. a story, uh, and I tr and I try to use uh, my body language because I think that's a major part of the impact of a story is Absolutely. how it's how how it's it's told. So I mm. use my expressions and I use my emotions I, I I try to breathe in in a particular way but I mean the real keys that you need you need to have knowledge and experience and you need to have uh, authenticity and um, uh, and you need to you know just be very um, clear about where your story is is going you need to be absolutely enthusiastic and committed uh, to the story. Yeah, I think also in the process, you are looking to you're you're looking to take people from perhaps total disinterest. Or you, you've got to engage people and then take them right through a spectrum of stages until they feel they must that you know you're galvanizing them to act action. You're saying, you know, let us invade Byzantium. Mm -hmm. That's the, the kind of thing. So I think that going from engagement through involvement to uh, interesting to inspiration uh, to action these are these are all important stages that that you know we need to take people through in our storytelling I love that so you said en engagement involvement inspiration then action that's, that's uh, well I think yeah I think and probably somewhere in, in there you would add influence so I think it's engagement mm. involvement inspiration influence and action oh, those right. are five kind of stages of the story um that's what you're looking to do yeah uh, now i i feel the more that you reduce this to a process the less mm. likely it is to work so again it has to be authentic uh, and and it start you know it starts off with that but but if you have the knowledge and the experience and you have the passion and the enthusiasm, then those things will come through. And, and storytelling is a, a natural process. I don't think we gain a lot by trying to copy uh, other people. So I say, you know, if you see a great storyteller like Alan Clayton or um, Bernard Ross or, you know, any of these um, um, kind of guru type, public yes. speakers. Tony yeah. Elisher was a great example. I don't think it helps to try and be like them. I think mm. you have to be like you. Mm. I like that you said you said you've got the knowledge and the experience on one side and then you've also got the passion on the other side and I think when I and I talk to CEOs and small charities and they're looking for people to help them with their fundraising for example but 
they have the passion they just don't think they have the knowledge and if you had to have one of those as your starting point let's say you could only have the knowledge of storytelling or the passion for the the cause which one would you choose to have and which one do you think is easier to, to pick up well i i just don't think you can get anywhere without the passionate belief it's it's you know i well my mantra is we have in our sector we have the best stories in the world to tell yeah, we do. best reasons for telling them well absolutely so you but you have to tell them with power and passion that will move people to action that's that's for me encapsulates it the, the knowledge and experience can come later but i will say george that um when i was a young fundraiser in Action Aid. I spent a year trying to learn what, what it involved being a fundraiser. Mm. And then after that year, I was sent to Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, and I visited Kenya and Burundi in Central Africa. And I went into the wildest of places and I went to places where, where tourists just can't go. And I saw things and, you know, I find in Africa stories kind of jump out from behind the trees, mm. <laughs> jump out at you. And, you know, I just came back from that so fired up. I think my, my capacity to be a great fundraiser multiplied a hundredfold because of that experience. And I would counsel I mean, there are many, so many false economies in the not-for-profit sector. So I would counsel charities to mm. invest in making sure that their fundraisers are really steeped in the cause and, and that they, they fully get the, um, the nuances and the, and the experiences and they meet the people and they listen to the voices. And, you know, to be a great storyteller, you've got to be a good listener. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sometimes it is about that in the sector, isn't it? How can we get our beneficiaries' voices out there in a, in a more creative way. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point, yeah. Yeah. So when, we're, when we are delivering storytelling, and of course there's so many different uh, people in, in the world and everybody is unique and we all have kind of our own interpretations, and do you do anything when you're thinking about uh, different groups of people, different generations potentially, to try and apply your stories in, in those ways? Um, I, I would hate to think that... People, you know, I'm now of an older generation. <laughs> in, in my twilight years, I would hate to think that people were kind of censoring their stories because I was, um, uh, they were talking to an older audience. And, you know, we as fundraisers, obviously, we do recognize that donors tend to be, you know, um, um, middle class, uh, yeah. relatively affluent, comfortably off, yeah. and usually retired, and, and of a certain age. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you listen, if you listen to songs or you watch movies, mm. songs and movies uh, are not. You don't get different editions for different age groups. Such I, I think we tell the story. Yeah. And the essence of the story will be universal. And I would not pull my punches for different audiences. Well, you know, possibly for children, you have to um, think of different devices to, to draw them in. Yeah. They're in real danger of patronizing people yeah, yeah. If, you, if you put them into boxes. Um, I have not consciously uh, structured my stories. Um, you know, what you do need to do, George, mm -hmm. is treat your audience with respect. Absolutely. You need to give them uh, good, you know, you need to give them good grammar, uh, yeah. Good, yeah. good diction. You need to, um, uh, you need to give them empathy and sensitivity uh, that, that are necessary qualities for a storyteller. I do not think this is an easy task. Agreed. Yeah. But the more natural you can be, the better. And the more you try to complicate it, the more holes you will dig for yourself to fall into. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't No, I don't think we need to be different uh, in dealing with different generations. Uh, I love 
of fundraisers. I, I love that you said empathy and sensitivity, because when I'm training, I'm always like, we want to make our funders cry. <laughs> Whereas you said that so much nicer than I said it. Um, and it's always, when I when I was learning to fundraise a number of years ago and, and going on courses, I would talk to the trainers, and a lot of the trainers work for, for DSC as associates. And I would say, what is your favorite book? And I would always expect them to say, well, it's the Writing Better Fundraising Applications book. Of course it is. But every single time, Ken, they come back to this they come back to your book and storytelling and it is about getting the structure right. Of course, you've got to have your accounts right. That's lovely, George. I, I think that's fantastic. I would love, uh, <laughs> I love Absolutely. to Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so they, everyone well, comes back to we, oh. we do have a few copies left, actually. Um, so, you know, hopefully people will um, will get their own. And, and, of course, my most recent book is, is also available from DSC. Absolutely, yes. Sort of campaigning fundraising. Definitely. And and so I was really attracted to this early on in fundraising and very lucky to be well-trained and, and know how valuable story is. And as, as someone who reads a lot of bids, I will read a bid sometimes and I'll think there's just nothing in here that gives me the beneficiary's voice. And for you, what role does story play in fundraising? Well, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you cannot take stories out of fundraising. Um, to me, fundraising is essentially the communication of inspiration. We're in the inspiration business. We're not in the business of raising money. Absolutely. Because money, money is the end product of what we do. It is not the means. And, and this is where, you know, look at the Olive Cook uh, fiasco and the media attacks mm. on inappropriate fundraising methods. Mm. Relentless persuasion, aggressive fundraising, you know, which has no place in, in modern fundraising. And, you know, so I hope we're entering post Olive Coke, a, a, a new era of, of responsible fundraising. And it, it, is, it is the story that is, is at the heart of this, because I remember going to Australia uh, shortly after Relationship Fundraising, my, my first and best-selling book yeah. was, was published. My, not my first big book. It wasn't my first book. Uh, it was my first sort of big success. Of course, yeah. Um, and this guy said to me, um, oh, of course, fundraising is just another kind of selling. Mm. And I said, I, I think you could, not be, you could not be more wrong. Mm. We are not in the business of persuading people to do something they don't want to do. We are in the business of inspiring people. So um, uh, I, I think that, you know, you cannot take storytelling out of fundraising, not, not, not in any way uh, at all. Mm. And, and you were talking about your beneficiaries. Uh, yeah. Mostly what fundraising organizations do is they talk about themselves and their organization. <laughs> Look at charity annual reports. Yeah. You will see the chief executive's report, the chairman of trustees report, the head of finances report. And, you know, you lose the will to live before you're halfway, you know, even their mothers wouldn't read these stories. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these, um, uh, they're not stories, they tend to be, you know, reports and statistically based uh, things. It's almost a throwback to whoever started this kind of process. There is a need to creatively change them up, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but we don't get, we don't engage people by talking about ourselves. Yeah. What a great organisation we are. I mean, Look at look at our government today. You know, all they can do is, is you know, they're they're catastrophically inept, but they spend all their time trying to say how great they are. Yeah. We have tended to do that same kind, fall into that same kind of trap as a sector. And and you know, for me, it's it's about getting your beneficiaries engaged, giving them a chance to talk. Now, every time I have been involved in persuading organisations that I've worked with to do that kind of thing mm. it's not difficult to get beneficiaries to step up and tell their story they want to really? tell their story particularly if they've you know not been very well treated or they've you know been hard they feel hard done by or, or, or whatever so let your beneficiaries talk and 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 listen to what they are uh, what what they're saying to and what what they can tell you about the difference that 
has been made in their lives by the interventions of organizations like yours. And if you give them space and places to tell their stories, then they will absolutely do that and they, and they will come forward. Um, as you say, you see so many um, kind of cases for support, which are yeah. so uh, bland and um, formulaic. They look like a UN document. <laughs> Nobody's going to read that. You cannot bore people mm. supporting your cause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, have to, you have to reach out. And it's hard. It's a noisy environment. There, there's... Um, you know, what is that? I can't remember how many different messages our average reader is exposed to in, in the average day. We have got to get our message. Absolutely. Break into their busy lives. Mm. And, and that takes some doing. So, you know, going back to an earlier point, the, the, the core of fundraising is communication. And the, the core of communication is telling a good story with power and passion and uh, telling that story well. So fundraising, I believe, is the truth told well. Mm. The truth told well, as far as I'm aware of that phrase, started life uh, as the slogan of an advertising agency. Um, it was the, the truth told well. Okay. The truth told well. I like it. The, yeah. Now, advertising agencies, as you know, George, are <laughs> professional liars. <laughs> So to have a slogan of the truth told well, that, that really pissed me off. I'm sorry, with <laughs> my language, but that really, really did. We, because, you know, why should they? But that's, that's our territory. We yeah. should, we should uh, set out mm. to tell the truth as well as we possibly can. Now, what this means for mm. our organisations is that we have to train people. Mm. And we have to train people to do this properly, and we have to invest in that training. So going back to sending uh, the, the young fundraiser to Kenya and Burundi, um, that takes quite an investment. Absolutely. Charities are, you know, normally the, the investment, the I word, has them running for the hills uh, <laughs> because they, you know, it's anathema to them. They can't get their head round. Even yeah. the people who are captains of industry, who know the power and necessity of investment yeah. in their commercial enterprises, they don't get it in charities. But we have to invest in people. We have to train people. We have to recruit mm. storytellers. Mm. I, I, um, I'm often, I'm not so much nowadays, but I, I used to often sit on selection boards for directors of fundraising, or I would be invited in to meet the candidate and... Course, yeah. uh, give an opinion and I would often say why are you even looking at this person they're not a natural fundraiser because they're not they're not likable they're not approachable they're not you know they don't have empathy they don't yeah. <laughs> they, and, and and I'm sorry but there's far too much of that in the cabinet leadership we need Absolutely. new, much bolder leadership that will um, make sure that we have the right people give them the right tools and equipment so that they are fully able to go out and inspire the world. Fundraising at the moment is generally um, looked down on. This was basically the motive. I, I swore I would never write another fundraising book, but when I came to do the, the essence of campaigning fundraising, it really focuses on the fact that mm. um, we, we should be, uh, we have got so much more to offer mm. at, and, you know, you cannot separate fund, the fundraising element from the campaigning. People don't give you money for things to stay the same. There is always a campaigning element. Absolutely. But fundraising sounds as if it's all about money, and it's not. It's about work that needs doing. It's about changes that people want to see, and our job is to facilitate that. Absolutely. Storytelling is the most powerful tool we have at our disposal. Mm -hmm. uh, can you um, tell me about one of your campaigns then? Maybe pick one out from your career where storytelling's had a profound effect. I can think of some from the book, but I'll, I'll let you. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think I would, I would say, um, uh, you know, you have to accept that fundraising is an emotional 
business. You cannot take emotion out of, of fundraising. It's inevitably emotional and it's foolish to try. So, um, uh, you know, you, the building of the passion into, into fundraising is, 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 you know, absolutely first and foremost. Mm. And I used to have to do that for a lot of different organizations because um, during the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, I was working uh, with my own agency, Burnett Associates, yep. and we worked with most of the big, or many of the big charities in the land, and we produced some really, really memorable um, cause, um, cases and uh, case histories and some of the, the, the best fundraising from, from around the world. So um, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I could give a lot of different examples. Um, Take one. Green, green, well, okay, Greenpeace uh, was an organization that we uh, worked a lot with. We, yep. we did some amazingly good campaigns for them. The most recent organization that I've been working is with the National Youth Orchestra. Oh, and they okay. have, you know, basically their stories are the stories of young aspiring musicians mm. and the hurdles that are often in the way that prevent people. And their audience is predominantly um, classic donor profile, probably slightly older, um, but people who love music, and which mm. is actually most people. Mm, <laughs> most yeah. people love classical music. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's a universal story. And they tell their that they, they have only been fundraising since 2016. Yeah. Um, and they've built up a donor file over the last couple of years, uh, which is very impressive. And, and it's, you know, they're recruiting supporters at um, a kind of costs that most people would, uh, would die to achieve. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're getting the kind of feedback from their supporters, which is, is so so um, powerful and yeah. so effective. But in terms of actual um, campaigns, uh, I mean, a campaign that inspired me, uh, which I write about in the book, in fact, it's, it forms the preface of uh, storytelling, is the uh, Amnesty North Korea ads that I worked on with Indra Sinha. Absolutely. And, and the campaign that led up to that is the... Uh, was the Amnesty's um, long copy full-page press advertisements from the 1990s uh, that were always written by um, Indra Sinha, who's a, an author and, um, I, in my view, the best uh, fundraising copywriter uh, who's still active. Uh, he, he and I are about the same age, actually. So, you know, we're both in our declining years. Um, but we, we, you know, the, the, the sheer act of telling the story mm. of the North Korean mm. death camps yep. uh, and the hardship and deprivation that was inflicted upon the, the people who were unfortunate enough to find themselves in those camps. Mm. Um, I mean, that's... The, very powerful fundraising stuff that will, you know, will shake people over their their breakfasts. But again, Indra Sinha broke all the rules of advertising by writing long headlines, by exceptionally long copy ads, yep. telling a story. Yep. And it was the unfolding of the layers of the story mm. uh, that actually, um, and, I, and I quote him and I use his writing as an example a lot in the book um, because uh, I think he kind of instinctively understood the role of the, the fundraising copywriter. And, you know, in something like that, where you are looking to, to appeal to the emotions of your readers and you can't create emotions. Emotions are there. They just are but you can um, stimulate them. So, so in, in those ads, it was the compassion, mm. it was the anger that, that these things could be done and the desire to do something uh, in a seemingly hopeless situation. 
And in fact, I, I cite in those amnesty ads that one of their most effective ads um, was when they, they said, we have failed. We failed to make a difference. And it's because we failed that we need you to support us because we must try again, because we cannot allow this to go on. And I thought that was exceptionally uh, powerful uh, and uh, effective. Honest. And honest. honest and, it, and in fact, it was brilliant for Amnesty because mm. in those days, Amnesty was recruiting donors off the page at a profit. Mm. Almost unheard of. Mm. Because of this story or, or pre that story as well? Because um, of that story? Or? This was because of the, uh, the campaign in the, in the 90s that, uh, yeah. that had, had um, supervised. And there, there was, um, these ads are all, by the way, showcased on Sophie and they're explained and dissected in some detail on Sophie. Because I think that just looking at these ads is a masterclass mm. in fundraising copywriting. Absolutely. And any fundraiser, and I meet lots of them, who doesn't know about this kind of history and tradition within mm. the fundraising sector. Mm. And this was why we set up Sophie 15 years ago, the Showcase of Fundraising Innovation and Inspiration, yeah. as a free resource for... Um, charities so that they could look at the best of what works in fundraising and, and copy it. We, we want people to learn from it. But, but, but the leadership within our organizations has got to recognize that they have the duty to evolve and um, make possible and fund the learning that people need to have to be an effective fundraising storyteller. Yeah, and in some cases, just to start themselves as well, if that is their role in, in the charity. Which, of course, includes their buying a copy of my book for every fundraiser in their organisation. I mean, we would we would back this up 100%, <laughs> of course. Not that I have any vested interest in this. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, and I do joke, but the, the book has been vitally important for me. And just even just one of the pages I'll pick out is just a whole page of emotive language and remotive words you can use. And that is just a resource I come back to all the time. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, it's, um, yeah, I think the words we use are really important. And, mm. uh, you know, I talk a bit in the book about bad language and yeah. terms like lapsed donor and, uh, um, <laughs> acquisition and uh, and development and retention i mean do you want to be acquired by a charity would yeah. you want to live next door to a lapsed donor yeah uh, i mean it sounds like a fallen woman it sounds biblical but but um so i you know every again going back to michael and the early days of my seminars i have always imagined that the back two rows of this hopefully packed conference hall mm. full of donors mm. and they will be looking on and listening to what i'm saying Absolutely. and if i say anything that's offensive to donors then they will let me know about it fairly fairly quickly um you know i, I focus on the donor experience i believe if giving is a good experience donors will do more of it if it's not a good experience they'll fairly quickly stop and if we use language which is inappropriate, which our organisations do all the time, absolutely. Uh, I mean, even referring to people as high net worth individuals, mm. low-level donors, mm. and, you know, middle-level donors, and things major like donors, that. yeah, major donors. That's right. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't mind being a major donor, but I certainly don't like to be thought of as a middle-level or a low-level donor. That's fairly demeaning. So, yeah. so you know, it's it's thinking about. Mm. how your words are being received and and this i think is um uh, is is hugely important for fundraisers uh, I love that. we we should we should focus on getting our language right because it because it's so important and yet uh, unfortunately the opposite is happening in organizations mm. pay less attention you will not be told off if your grammar is poor um and yet if you're writing to mainly older donors, yeah. you will find that an awful lot of them notice things like that. 
they won't let it stop them from supporting the cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may spoil the experience for them, and that's unforgivable. Yeah, and and Ray Locke, the C, the ex CEO of Forces in Mind Trust, he said it was his number one bugbear when reading bids. His grammar, and that's yeah. One? No, that's I've often heard that from yeah. uh, from trust and people in trusts and foundations that they are dismayed by the the poor quality of of, of writing. Okay, so a question then that I want to ask, and and I have an answer for it myself, but I want to ask you, Ken. So do emojis have a role in language <laughs> future of storytelling well <laughs> <laughs> i i use emojis myself i i, I wanted to hear but they can be quite fun um mm. but i also tell jokes and i try and make things light-hearted and, but yeah. I, I think fundraisers need to be quite careful because um Humour can be quite risky in fundraising. Some things that will appeal to one part of your audience may not appeal to the other. I, I think if you have honesty, sincerity, integrity, and you treat people with respect, mm. then you can use things like that in a lighthearted way and it will um, not be, a, it'll certainly not be a disadvantage. It may yeah. be be an advantage i we do not somewhere in our distant past somebody drove us along the line of copying big business yeah uh, we should not be copying big business we should not be talking about organizations it's a movement is much more powerful than an organization mm, like that we should i think we should look like we're here to change the world i don't believe we should be dressing up in in suits and ties and trying to look like um, we're we're you know, 100. yeah Aviva Insurance or pitching to shareholders <laughs> or, or yeah or we're pitching to shareholders yeah yes let's talk about our stakeholders let but but let's do it as the um, you know we I think we we have to be very focused we have to um, you know there's no less professionalism. Uh, in our sector, but we do not want to wear the the clothes of of big business. But we we should be looking to be distinctive. We're not the not for profit sector. I hate that because it talks mm. about what we're not. Mm. We are the for change. For change, and we are professional people with with appropriate skills, with a great deal of integrity. Uh, with uh, you know, we we are um, fully respectful. We, we are actually able to convince our supporters mm. that something is good for them. And this, George, this is the most untapped treasure for our sector is the fact that um, behavioural scientists are now increasingly able to show that giving is good for you. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your marriage. It, Absolutely. It longer, you know, there's all sorts of things. And I, I now, if ever I am giving a talk, I focus quite a lot on this because the, the sector has never made enough of it. And, it, you know, it, it, this should be a mutual thing. It should be a, uh, people should enjoy our communications because they're getting such good stories. They're being involved in such a way. They're being shown that they can make a practical, meaningful difference in people's Definitely. lives. And we should allow them to drive the process. We should not be trying to channel or persuade or all of those things. So I think we need a rethink. Uh, and that's what I've put into the essence of campaigning fundraising. Like that, uh, yeah. Uh, and it's not going to be me and my generation that's going to bring about this change. It's going to be young folk like you, George, and your colleagues. I'll take um, that, yeah. <laughs> and actually, to me, it's the biggest cause of optimism as I approach my declining years is that actually I see the potential in young, that the next generation, the coming generation of fundraising leaders. Mm, I agree. Just yeah. hope that the conservative, small C conservative, um, uh, heads down, risk averse mm -hmm. aspects of the not-for-profit sector. I hope they will move aside Absolutely. and 
create the environment in which this new leadership can thrive and deliver. Well, because I think we could be doing much, much more. We, mm. could be, we could be much more important in people's lives and we could be much more respected and we could be reaching a lot more people than we do. Um, and one thing that will help is the power of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've written down the, the word movement there in terms of an orga, instead of organizations. And I think when you talk about younger people, potentially that links to social media and people who off their own back, no governance structure, no charity commission registration, post their thoughts and feelings and their stories on Instagram and Twitter and get well, a big following and cause change. I, I have to say, you know, social media came along at the time when I was already, you know, um, set in my ways. But, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I try to make sense of Facebook and Twitter and all of those, those things. Um, but, I, you know, I, actually there is so much bad negativity. There's so much aggression and, and dishonesty. True. We need to counter that. Mm. And we need to counter it with... Um, you know, it, it, kindness is a is a a word that I think we should focus a little bit more on. Look mm -hmm. at our political discourse today; it's appalling. And you know, and we are we are you know we are led by. I better not go there because you know, but but oh, you don't need to. Yeah, like integrity, competence, uh, honesty. You know, these things are in short supply. Now, this is a space in which our sector, the for change sector, can occupy. We can yeah. move into this, and we've got the stories, we've got the achievements, we've got the warm glow, we've got all the things that should help us to, to make that happen. And I think um, the next 15, 20 years should be very, very interesting for the not for This is a great time to be a fundraiser. Yeah. And I, I shall possibly not get to that promised land, but I am going to be up at the top of the hill watching. And uh, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. I agree. And, and I mean, if you believe in generational theory, this was meant to happen. We were meant to reform at this point um, every 90 years or so. So potentially this is the right time for it. That's uh, excellent, George. Well, we, we should have a beer together and talk more about that. I, <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Um, so one of the things you wrote in your book that when you know sometimes you read something and you think that is so important, I'm never going to forget that. And it's happened a few times um, recently. Your, your book was one of those. And you say that change can only occur whenever there is a good crisis or a good story. And that makes so much sense instantly to me. Um, Obviously, we've just had a pretty epic crisis with COVID. Um, I think we, we're still on this journey, aren't we? How else could charities be capitalising on the COVID crisis? Could they be either talking more about the crisis or could they be capitalising on stories? What, what do you think? Okay. Well, OK, that's interesting. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that I said something as wise as that. Um, I don't recall saying it, but I'm glad to hear that I did. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I do think... Uh, we are still deep in, in the COVID crisis. Um, and, it, and that sort of throws everything up in the air and, and kind of rules go out of the window. But mm. um, I mean, I had a very dramatic, uh, I, was, I was traveling in Australia and New Zealand, um, lecturing for the Fundraising Institute of Australia and the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Uh, and I was one of the last people out of New Zealand. So I, I saw kind of the actions that were being taken mm. in February of 2020. And I saw how ineptly uh, our country responded. <laughs> how many people died yeah. directly uh, as a result of that. So, so it was in a time of short-sightedness. Mm. The thing about the charity sector at that time was there seemed to be two basic um, different approaches that people could make to a, a, a pandemic crisis, which you know wasn't exactly unheard of or unforeseen by those people who spend their time project, projecting the future. Um, and the you know the first of those was to um, heads down, cancel all your cancel everything. It's going to be disastrous for fundraisers. Um, let's put all our staff on furlough. 
Yeah. Including the fundraising staff. Yeah. Now, you know, the, to me, the clue is in the name. Fun, you know, <laughs> if you're going to need money, yeah. What make what? Where is the sense in in putting your your staff on furlough? Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I thought that was a incredibly short sighted. Mm. So, Sophie, we've run a, se a series um, which which was all focused on the positivity of of um, fundraising during the pandemic because yeah. most. Most of the donor classes, if there is a donor class, <laughs> um, were not hard up. They were not yep. losing their jobs. Um, yep. they, you know, they, they in fact were in the opposite situation. They had money to spend and they wanted to be doing something. They yep. wanted to be doing something about this crisis. And so we've run a, a, a series of features based on fundraisers around the world um, giving us information on the success of campaigns. Among those charities who are donor-focused, who are living the new age of uh, responsible fundraising, yeah. who are kind of relationship fundraisers at heart, mm. who are delivering the good donor experience. Absolutely. And they were incredibly successful, and they reported things like, it's like Christmas all year round. This was in the middle of the summer of 2020. Yeah. In fact, then we followed up six months later, and these organizations were still getting good results. And if you follow Mark Phillips of Blue Frog and you listen to what they have been doing in terms of their research, and if you don't follow Mark Phillips, you're not serious about fundraising. If you don't follow what Mark Phillips is saying, you're just not in the game. Nice. Uh, they are showing incredibly positive uh, results. So, so I think the the COVID pandemic is a an appalling example of the short sightedness of fundraising uh, charities. Mm. Uh, what we need to do now is recognise that um, the market for uh, for for something to believe in is infinite mm. and, and, and donors will support that. So we need to get out there and tell our stories with power and passion that will mm. move people to action. And we do not want to be holding back. This is a time, you know, it is a time of crisis is, I, I cite the Sarti story. I don't know if this is in my book or not. I can't remember. I know, yeah. <laughs> For a while. Yeah. Um, but there's a film in the 1960s called Grand Prix. Okay. Uh, with, um, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, Yves Montand plays, plays a French racing driver called Sarti. Mm. And Sarti, his tactic, he, he won a lot of races. Because his tactic was that almost always in a Grand Prix race, there's a moment of confusion. You know, perhaps the rain is coming down, the track's very slippery, a car goes into a skid, mm. they're, they're belting along at 180 miles an hour, and there's complete confusion. At that moment, Sarti, you know, most drivers would slow down. Yeah. And wait to see what's happening ahead of them. Yeah. That's the moment where Sarti hits the accelerator. He puts his foot down and he goes right through. Now, it's a highly risky strategy, yeah. but that's how you win races. Yeah. Now, I think we, there are so many Sarti moments, mm -hmm. and COVID was a Sarti moment, where fundraisers should have hit the accelerator. Mm. Instead of cutting back on fundraising, that was the wrong move. And the evidence of that now is unchallengeable. Anybody yeah, yeah. Who, who thinks otherwise um, has either not been communicating properly with their supporters yeah. or is, is, um, is unaware of what's been going on. Absolutely. Because there's plenty of evidence of that. I love that. So, that is very reminiscent in my own thoughts. I think that's really nice. And you are so quotable, Ken. You said market for something to believe in is infinite. It's well, uh, that's actually, I'm quoting somebody else. Oh, okay. Uh, a guy called Hugh McLeod. I, I am very in, influenced by a, an American uh, website called The Gaping Void. Yeah. And Hugh McLeod, uh, um, 
and, and you know, I've often worried. I've I've spent much of my time in marketing. Mm. Um, I ran a marketing agency for twenty years, yeah. uh, and um, I've never met a donor who wants to be marketed at. Mm. Um, I think we are in a marketplace, obviously, yeah. um, and it is the market for something to believe in. Mm. And the beauty mm. is that that market is infinite, and that's why during recessions, and I've been through a few in my. 43 years as a <laughs> fundraiser. Um, the, the fundraising does well at times mm. of difficulty. And so um, uh, we need to recognize that the market for what we do is infinite. Um, and we need, but we need to stop marketing at people. Absolutely. <laughs> they don't like it. Absolutely. Um, amazing, amazing, and that was such a, an interesting deep dive into storytelling. And what I want to do now, Ken, and this is selfishly, I'm an avid hiker, um, and so of course we couldn't meet without talking about this. Um, for those listening, Ken has just walked the Camino de Santiago, a pilgrimage trail um, through Spain and parts of Portugal. And I, I know that I wasn't necessarily going to bring this in, but you mentioned that you had some stories that you brought back. Well, I, I certainly have. I mean, this was an. A, a, for me, a huge undertaking. So I turned 71 just recently, and yes. um, uh, and I've never done anything like this before, but I, I had the opportunity to walk the, the French Camino, which is from Sorry, across the French border, across the Pyrenees, 500 miles. So I really just wanted to be able to sing the Proclaimer's song, I Will Walk 500 Miles, <laughs> with an honest... An open heart, um, but as 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 it, within Africa, when you do something like this, then stories kind of leap out at you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I had real hardship because I had a broken leg a few years ago, and in the early stages when we were climbing the Pyrenees, I had a lot of trouble with my yeah. left leg. Yeah, yeah. So you know, through hardship, you learn. Uh, a great deal about yourself and um you know i was faced with the prospect of possibly having to turn back and i decided yeah. i decided that would be too embarrassing um well, maybe. I, I was being sponsored and um oh, gosh. and I, I for sophie and i raised 22000 pounds wow uh, congratulations through that um so i couldn't turn back which was which you couldn't you're right <laughs> But, but one story which which um, which springs to mind is the story of a guy called Jimmy, uh, who was uh, an Irishman, uh, and he. We were walking. This was quite early, and we were walking one of the worst parts of the Camino, which is coming downhill from the Pyrenees. Mm. It's called the Dragon's Teeth, and it's called the Dragon's Teeth because there's no road. It's more like rock climbing than than hiking. Um, and Jimmy was confessing his life. Uh, he, he talked rather a lot, and um, uh, he, but he was fascinating. He had been an alcoholic. He had been verging on. He had been told by his wife that she was leaving him and taking the children, and he decided to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So he was telling us this whole story, and we were on a bit of track that was almost, an, you know, hardly a track at all. And we turned a corner, and there in the middle of the track, and this is documented and on the Sophie site. Okay. Uh, there was a full keg of beer, one of these, <laughs> one of these metal yeah, yeah. containers full of beer. Now, how it got there, the, I, the cars couldn't go, and I, I mean, I just do not know how. But we turned the corner just as Jimmy was telling us this horrendous story about his battle with alcoholism, and there was a keg of beer, oh, and it seemed to have come by divine providence. Law of attraction. I have to say, Jimmy got so spooked, but he he just ran on ahead. Yeah, and, and we didn't see him again. Is it the pub? It was rather sad. <laughs> but um, so, uh, you know, we have, um, uh, I, I, I mean, there, there were various. Uh, yeah. uh, one, one thing I was particularly proud of, at the very first night, we were about 50 people all staying in the same alberga yeah. uh, uh, in a place called Orison, which is just uh, up in the Pyrenees. 
And um, the host said, we would go around the room and everybody would say who they were, where they had come from and why they were walking the Camino. Nice. And um, so there were, there were Italians, there were Latvians, there were Americans, Canadians, Australians, there were yeah. people from all over the place, a lot of French people. And um, I was, I think, I, I, sort of in the first dozen people yeah. somewhere when they got to me. And I just, because I speak French, I decided yeah. I would do my introduction in French. Uh, and uh, of course, the French people loved that. Yeah. Uh, so I stood up and I, and I t told my story. You keep meeting people as you walk through 500 miles of the Camino, you keep meeting people that you knew at the beginning and several yeah. people who were there I met up late with later, and they said, "Ah, you're you're Ken. You're the guy who uh, who did his, his introduction in French." Oh. And then I met people along the track who said, "Oh, we've heard from somebody else about somebody who had done that introduction in French." Not many old people on the trail, Ken. I think you you've you've been they've seen you coming, haven't they? <laughs> you must be. <laughs> so I, I I could go on all day, um, George. Uh, I, with stories from the Camino. It was a real challenge. It was a very tough thing to do. But yeah. I think that it, it um, uh, you know, I don't want to be self-righteous, but it showed me that my, at 71, my life is not over. And Absolutely. it is actually worth taking on a big challenge. And, and if you set your mind to something, you can do it. And I think that's a, a lesson for I hope for life. Um, I've had a wonderful, wonderful career in the for change sector. Um, uh, I thought it would be worth the kind of pain and suffering to do something like this to show just that I could still do it. But I then surprised myself. I really enjoyed it. I loved the Spanish people. I loved the, the countryside we walked through. It was entertaining, it was fun. And as I said, I raised 22,000 pounds for Sophie, which can't be bad. Amazing. So there we go, George, that was that was it. There we go. So after saying we wouldn't go anywhere near an hour, we're of course over an hour, aren't we, Ken? Um, but this is this is how it goes when we've got some great stories to talk about. And I talk too much, George. No, you talk, talk more enough, that's fine. It's, it's been really lovely talking to you, Ken, and, and meeting you properly, actually, after working with you for a number of years. Um, so you mentioned a few things I just want to go back through just to make sure our listeners know. Um, one of them, Mark Phillips, Blue Frog. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out about that? Google's well, uh, the Blue Frog Agency in London is, um, I think, uh, uh, one of the leading suppliers to the sector. Um, um, Mark is the um, chief executive there. The, he heads it up, founder of Blue Frog. Yeah. Um, they are, you will get them online. I, I, um, Queer Ideas is the name of Mark's blog. Um, oh. I, and I have no uh, connection or, I mean, there are other, other agencies that are available. I'm a great fan of Open Fundraising, who are the, the people who came up with the brilliant idea uh, for the, I wish I'd thought of that series of uh, um, which Sophie runs yes. um but uh i just think mark and his colleagues have done a particularly valuable piece of work around the um around the, the pandemic and yeah yeah and donor, donors attitudes and thinking and they're always surprising rising mm. and perspective um and they can they will tell you about great results that nice. they had with their colleagues Sometimes you need to see that, don't you, as well, to have that confidence grow. That's a, that's a great one. And then another two you mentioned, the Gaping Void. Um, yeah, it's at Gaping Void. Um, yeah. Hugh McLeod is the is the um, is the creative genius yeah. behind Gaping Void. I just think it's I I, I get emails from them every now and then, and I've pinched more ideas from them than from most other sources. Love it. Just clever. Love it. And then finally, um, the Sophie website, just want to read that out properly so people can just make okay. sure. Okay. So Sophie is the showcase of fundraising, innovation and inspiration. It's yeah. www.sophie.org. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's a treasure trove of free resources for campaigning fundraisers. Absolutely. I can almost hear the keys getting tapped now, typing that in, sofii.org. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then finally, Ken, yourself, um, do you wish to be contacted? And if you do, how would you like people to kind of follow you? Well, in I, I have a website, which is ken at kenburnett.com. Yeah. Well, it's www.kenburnett.com. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's got uh, details of my books. As I say, I've got a few copies of books left. Um, I'm happy to hear from um, fundraisers. Um, but, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not working with clients anymore. I'm doing less and less uh, seminars. And I'm more focusing on major undertakings and adventures like walking the Camino. Uh, so, uh, but I'm always happy to hear from aspiring young people who want Amazing. to change the world. Amazing. So, yeah, I've obviously been talking about storytelling can change the world uh, a lot today. One of your books, and just pick up the the other one as well, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Campaigning fundraising, the essence of campaigning fundraising, and so these books are available through DSC, but they're available elsewhere as well. Ken, do you want to let people know? Yeah, that's right. They can be ordered from WhiteLionPress.com uh, yeah. or from or via my website, KenBurnett.com. Amazing. So thank you so much, Ken, and, and a really valuable talk there and a really nice insight into one of the true experts of storytelling in our for change sector. I nearly said for profit sector there. My brain was was haunting me, wasn't it? Well, well, in that sense, George, the profit that we get is priceless. I'll take uh, it. There yeah. we go. Uh, thank you. So much. Thank well, you very much, George. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for watching Charity Questions by the Directory of Social Change. So this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media. So if you want to get involved, please check out the Directory of Social Change on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, to hear more about this content and to learn more about Charity Questions, subscribe to our YouTube channel now and of course, like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for watching. Cheers. <laughs>